we've begun on the first Sabbath evening of each month to be looking at some of the great simple biblical truths of the gospel of salvation. We find that that is good for ourselves and good for our friends. And we're going to be doing that this evening. And I'd like to read now from the book of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 34. Acts chapter 16, reading from verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day unto Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all of the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up 
And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. I want to look with you tonight at the answer to a question. The question is the most important question that any human being can ever ask. And the answer must then be correspondingly important. On the first Lord's Day evening of January, we looked at the question. It was asked by the Philippian jailer, and it is recorded in Acts chapter 16, Verse 30, what must I do to be saved? Tonight we look at the answer given to that man by Paul and Silas. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You could probably, most if not all of you, have told me that answer without me reading it out. It's, it's a very well-known verse indeed. There can be few people in Northern Ireland who haven't heard the question and the answer. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's, it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to understand what believing in the Lord Jesus means. What does it mean? And when you start talking to people, you find that there's quite a bit of ignorance and indeed confusion about what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. And this is something that we can't afford to be confused about because it is so extremely important for every one of us. I suppose our our common sense tells us that it's more than historical belief. Uh, We believe in William Shakespeare. Uh, We believe that such a man existed and wrote many plays. We believe in Florence Nightingale. We believe that she went to the Crimean War and uh, really got the profession of nursing on its feet. We believe in them. They existed. They were historical people. They were quite famous. But surely belief in Jesus Christ 
must be a lot more than that. And of course it is. Of course it is. It means depending on the Lord Jesus. Uh, It means relying on him. Trusting him. Committing ourselves to him. All of that and more is involved in saving faith, as we call it. Believing in Christ in such a way that from being lost, you are now saved. It's not a perfect illustration, but we could think of someone with serious heart disease. And they're told that they need a a multiple bypass, otherwise they're going to die. And they have to go to the surgeon and they have to listen to him and and find out about his qualifications and his capabilities. But then the time comes when they have to hand themselves over to that surgeon. They have to give themselves into his hands for whatever he's going to do for them. He's going to do something for them that they cannot do for themselves. And there comes that point of trust and commitment when they say to the surgeon, do with me what you will. I trust you to save me from this illness. And that's a little bit like what we are called to do with Jesus Christ. We realize, as we were thinking last time, that we need to be saved from our sins. We come to Christ and we commit ourselves to him. We yield ourselves to him. We entrust ourselves into his care. I haven't anything very original or profound to say this evening. What I do want to do is to state the gospel simply and clearly so that we may all understand it. Whether you respond to it or not is up to you. And perhaps one way we can do this is think about four ways in which we have to believe in Jesus. And I would just like to take you through these four ways quite quickly and simply. What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? Well, in the first place, we have to believe in Jesus as Son. We have to believe in Jesus as Son. And I mean by that, the Son of God. That is where our faith must start. Jesus of Nazareth was a real human being. Sometimes we read about the miraculous birth of Jesus. Well, of course, that's not true. His birth wasn't miraculous at all. It was completely normal. Uh, The same as every other human birth. His mother carried him as an unborn baby in her womb for nine months. He was born. He grew up as a baby and as a child, a youth and a young man. He was a full, real, true human being. If a 20th century doctor had examined him, he could have taken his uh, blood pressure and his cholesterol level and his pulse. He could have been weighed and measured. Jesus was 
a true human being, but he was more. He was more than that. It's interesting how many Superman legends there are in our world. There seems to be something attractive about this idea of a super being who comes to this earth from another planet and has amazing powers. The man of steel who can fly through the air, who can stop avalanches and runaway trains, who can do almost whatever he likes. He is a super being. But only one human being in the whole of history has ever had a connection outside this planet. And that was Jesus of Nazareth. Because while his birth was not miraculous, his conception certainly was miraculous. The Bible tells us that God fertilized an egg in the womb of Mary a young virgin who had never had intercourse with any man. That God, by his creative power, produced a pregnancy in that young woman. And that person miraculously conceived and naturally born was not only man, but God. He was a completely unique being. Fully God and fully man. With a divine nature and a human nature in one person. This is who Jesus of Nazareth was. There never has been anyone like him. It is an incredible story almost. But true. That is why at his birth angels sang in the sky. And so this unique person, the Son of God, as he's called, has made a unique impact on the world. That's why he was able to perform miracles. He gave sight to the blind and, and speech to those who couldn't speak. He healed lepers. He raised the dead. He stilled storms. He multiplied bread. That is why his teachings have had such an impact on the world and have shaped the world and his personality has dominated the history of the world for he wasn't an ordinary human being. He was God as well as man. This is the most amazing, wonderful event in history when God sent his son to this earth. God with us. And my friend, you have to ask yourself, do I believe this? Because you must believe this if you're to be saved. You must believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God, as more than man, more than human. God himself in human flesh in our midst. Do you believe that about Jesus of Nazareth? Can you accept that intellectually and give it credit in your mind? Here is where faith begins. 
a Roman centurion at the end of Mark's gospel, as he looked at Jesus dying on the cross, said, Surely this man was the Son of God. We must believe in Jesus as Son. Secondly, we must believe in Jesus as substitute. As substitute. Have you ever reflected what very odd documents the Gospels are? They are bizarre. They are weird. No human being would ever, ever have written a gospel. What sort of life did God lead when he came to earth? Where did he live? He lived in a little village in the back of beyond. What did he do? Well, he worked as a carpenter in a village shop. And then that was how he spent his life. Now, supposing I were to come to you today and say, well, you know, God has come to earth. God has come to earth in human form. You'd say, well, really? Where's he living? I'd say he's living in Monkstown in one of the housing executive houses in Monkstown. Oh, is he? Right. And what's he doing? Well, he's working as a mechanic in a, in a garage in Glengormley. Well, would you not think that was strange? I mean, why would God come down to earth to live in Monkstown, uh, delightful a place as it is to live, uh, and to work in Glengormley? I mean, what would be the point of that? Would he not go to, to London or Washington or Beijing or Moscow? or uh, Would he not go to speak at the United Nations or, or the European Union or... Would he not appear on worldwide... I mean, what would God be doing lying underneath cars and changing oil in a garage? What would be the point of that? That's what God did when he came to earth. The Gospels tell us just this, this really ordinary humdrum life in a little village on the edge of the Roman Empire. And then he spent two or three years wandering about with a small group of followers... And then he was killed as a criminal. And that was God coming to earth. That's an odd, that's an odd thing for God to do. What would be the point of that? You ever thought about that? You'll never understand that, you see, until we understand that he came to earth as a substitute. God's will for you and me, for all human beings, was that we should live lives of perfect obedience to his law. And he's told us that if we didn't do that, he would have to punish us because he was a holy God. And the problem is that none of us have done this. No ordinary human being ever in the history of the world has been able to live a perfect life. Nobody has been able to keep God's law perfectly. You haven't, I haven't, no one has. And so we're all in a serious position. God has to punish us because we've broken his law. But the gospel tells us that God has provided a substitute for us. He has provided his son as a substitute. And so what Jesus did, why he came to earth, was to live an ordinary human life 
of perfect obedience. That's what those 30 years were about. To live an ordinary human life. That was what was required. He didn't need to go to Rome to talk to Augustus Caesar. He didn't come to do anything amazingly dramatic or cosmic or earth-shaking. He came as a substitute for ordinary people. He came as a substitute for you and me. And because he came as a substitute for ordinary people, he had to live an ordinary life. And when you understand that, the gospel story makes perfect sense. And if God is providing a substitute, of course that's how he would live. An ordinary humdrum life and live a life of perfection, sinlessness, holiness and obedience. And he did. He never sinned. He never broke one of God's laws. He loved his father perfectly and always and completely and utterly. And then not only did he live a life of perfect obedience, but he died a very unjust, horrible and cruel death and was severely and terribly punished on the cross. Why? Not for anything he had done, because he didn't do anything wrong, but as a substitute. As a substitute. He lived a perfect life as a substitute. And he died a cruel death as a substitute. He's described in the New Testament as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb was an, an animal used in sacrifice. He himself said that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. We've heard in recent weeks about people being kidnapped in the Yemen. And they're kidnapped because the kidnappers want a ransom to be paid. And the ransom has to be paid so that they can be set free. And that's our Lord's explanation of his death. I've come to make a payment for people who are captured by sin so that they may be set free. So we have to see the Lord Jesus as a substitute. A substitute for men and women and boys and girls, for human beings, for his chosen people, living a life of perfect obedience and dying a cruel and terrible death when in that death God abandoned him. God forsook him. God turned away from him. And he suffered the pains of hell. That's the second thing. If you're to believe in Jesus, that you have to believe. To believe that he was a substitute for sinners. To believe that that is what his life and death is all about. He's the substitute. He's the lamb. He's the ransom. That was why he came. We cannot be saved until we believe in Jesus, the substitute. But then thirdly, we are to believe in Jesus as Savior. As Savior. Because the Bible tells us 
that the cross wasn't the end of the story. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. His body rose from the grave. It was changed, but it was still a real, physical, human body. And he spent about six weeks with his disciples, teaching them and talking to them. And then he was taken up to heaven. And he is now in heaven, in his human body, with his Father, the place of power and glory. And he's there as Savior. Peter says in Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his own right hand as a prince and a Savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins. So our Lord now, he's, he's living. He's existing at this moment. He's existing as Savior. And he gives to people repentance and forgiveness. And the Bible tells us that he's not only in heaven, but he is here in this building tonight by his Holy Spirit, by means of his Holy Spirit. His body is not here. His glorified body is not here. It is in some place, some location. We don't know where that is. But he is here by his Spirit. He says, I am with you always. And he is here as Savior. And my dear friend, if you're not a Christian tonight, there is a promise to you from this Savior, Jesus, that if you ask him to save you, and if you mean what you say, he will save you. He will save you no matter who you are. He will save you no matter what you have done. No matter how serious your own sins and faults may be, if you call on him, he will save you. If you believe in him, he will save you. He invites you to come to him that he may save you. What he urges you to do now is to believe in him. To believe in him as the Son of God. To believe in him as the substitute who took the place of sinners. And to believe in him as your saviour. What he calls you to do now is to confess to him your sin and helplessness. To say, Lord Jesus, I have broken God's commandments. I have neglected God. I have transgressed his law. I have done and said and thought many wrong things. I have sinned and I cannot help myself. And I'm sorry for my sin. And I hate my sin. And I long to be free from my sin. And Lord Jesus, I believe that you lived a perfect, holy life. And I believe that you died a cruel death for sinners. And I believe that you're able to save me. And I believe that you're willing to save me. I'm asking you now to save me.
to be my Savior. I'm going to depend completely on you. I'm going to rely on you. I'm going to trust on you. On your obedience and your death. Not in anything I can ever do. But completely and entirely and utterly on you. On your life. On your death. On your mercy. And my friend if you do that. If you do that truly. If you mean that. The Lord Jesus will save you. And what will happen will be. That all his righteousness and goodness and obedience will be entered, as it were, in God's book opposite your name and counted as yours. And all the punishment that he bore on the cross will be entered opposite your name and counted as punishment that you have suffered. And God will write over all your sins, paid in full. Paid in full. And God will forgive you and receive you for his son's sake. Jesus as son of God. Jesus as substitute. Jesus as saviour. But there is one more aspect to saving faith. We must not only believe in the Son, the Substitute, and the Saviour, but we must believe in Jesus as Sovereign. We must believe in Jesus as Sovereign. You see, when we believe, we are saved from the guilt of sin and the punishment of sin. But sin is still present in our hearts and our lives. We don't, Christ, well, you don't need me to tell you that Christians aren't perfect people. If you know any Christians, you'll know they're not perfect people. We still sin and we still do wrong. And the Lord Jesus is continuing the process of salvation in us day by day. He's saving us more and more and more from our sins until we reach glory. And we're made perfectly sinless. And we hand our whole lives over to his control. And that is part of saving faith. Let's go back to our illustration of the heart surgeon. You need the operation. Uh, the, the surgeon explains the operation and what he's proposing to do. And then he says, now could I ask you... Before I proceed to this operation, could I ask you a few questions about what lifestyle you propose uh, after the operation? And you say, well, um, I, I would plan to continue smoking 80 cigarettes a day, um, start each morning with a good Ulster fry, uh, a few patty sandwiches for lunch, uh, fish and chips and cream cake for tea. Uh, I don't plan to take any exercise. Well now, what would the surgeon say? Well, he would say there's no point in me operating. In fact, some surgeons would probably refuse 
to operate on such a person because there would be no point. It's not just a matter of him uh, fixing your heart. It's of you giving yourself into his control and his guidance and continuing to accept that guidance for the rest of your life. It's a process. It's a commitment. You couldn't say, well, I've had the operation. Now I can live however I like. You can't live how you like. And that's why that word in our text is so important. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. To believe in Christ for salvation is to receive him as our Lord, as our King, to hand over the rest of our lives to him for as long as we live. And friends, I'm afraid that's where many people go wrong. And that's one of the great differences between false faith and true faith or saving faith. People are quite keen to be saved from hell from punishment but they don't want to obey Christ they don't want to serve him they don't want to forsake their sins they want the heart operation but then they want to go on smoking and stuffing themselves with fatty food but you can't it's a package deal you can't have a part Christ you can't have a half Christ you can't say, well, I want you as my Savior, but I don't want you as my Lord. Or perhaps later on, when I get more consecrated, I'll have you as my Lord then. It doesn't work that way. And I have to be honest with you. As the Lord was honest when people came to him. And I have to bring to you the cost and the challenge of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. But realize who it is you're giving yourself to. Into the hands of God. The Lord. And from now on your life will have to be different. It will be under his control. It will be living by his rules. It will be living in obedience to him. It will be saying no to the things he says no to. And yes to what he commands. Here's the challenge that, that many people are just not willing to meet. And yet if it isn't met, there is no salvation. You cannot have a part Christ. You cannot have him as saviour from sin if he's not going to be Lord of the rest of your life. This is as clearly as I can put it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe that he came to earth to be a substitute for sinners? Do you realize that you need a savior if you've never trusted him in this way before? And that what you have to do is to call on him to be your saviour and in doing that you're recognising him as your Lord and your God your King and your Master and you're promising to live for him 
from henceforth. May God help you. Our longing for any of you here who have never believed in this way is that you should do so. And when we do so, what we thought of as the cost becomes part of the blessing. And what we thought of as the price becomes more of a gift from God. And what we thought of as sacrifice turns out to be no sacrifice at all, but great happiness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Amen. Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous encouragement of Peter's statement that it is Christ's privilege and responsibility to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. So, Lord Jesus, we call upon you by your Spirit to work in the hearts of any here tonight who need you, to change them by your Holy Spirit, to give them a new concern that they have perhaps never had before about their own souls, their own destiny. To help them to understand that without Christ they are lost, but that they need not be lost. For as we have heard already this evening, it is still a day of grace, and Christ offers himself in the gospel. Father, we thank you that there are those whom you have ordained to eternal life, who will certainly in your kindness and mercy respond and come that your people will be willing in the day of your power. We pray that there will be some who will believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation in him. In his name we pray. Amen.